You are listening to The North Podcast, a ministry of Mount Perrin North in Marietta, Georgia. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you today? It is good to see you. Man, what powerful worship, prayer time, and what about celebrating water baptisms together? Amen? So very exciting, and uh, I'm uh, glad you're here. We are continuing a series we began just a few weeks ago called Asking for a Friend, where we are answering questions that you submitted about two months ago. So I'm going to tell you right up front, uh, we had a lot of baptisms this morning, extended worship, and I wouldn't change a thing about any of that when God's working in the house, right? But I got some stuff I got to share with you this morning, all right? So I need you to buckle in, not because it's going to be uh, like I'm not um, in your face or anything. There's going to be some truth out there. But I need you to buckle in. We need to go really, really quickly this morning, all right? Um, so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Today we're going to look at the afterlife. What happens at life after death? What happens at life after death? Jesus tells a story. He's explaining a parable that he told. And in his explanation, he says this in verse 37. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed, and the field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this moment that we have, and I pray that you would... Rest with us and speak to us. Anoint the words you've given me to say as they go forth. Anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive so that you may accomplish your perfect will in our lives. And we'll give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Much about the afterlife that we talk about or life after death has to deal with heaven and hell. The latest Pew Research tells us that 74% of U.S. adults believe that there is a heaven. And 62% of U.S. adults believe that there is an actual Hell. Now, the, 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 the common belief held by believers is that heaven will be free from suffering and oppression, and hell is actually going to be the exact opposite. It will be filled with suffering and oppression. This is the interesting thing. Among even the believers that were researched in this, people who, who profess to be believers in Christ, there was no consensus on who gets to go to heaven or how they get there. And so this morning, I'm going to deal with those topics this morning, heaven, hell, and then I'm going to pause for a few moments, and I'm going to just answer some questions for, that you had submitted. So here's, here's my reason for that. I tried my best to weave them into some sort of narrative, and these questions are all over the place, but they need to be answered. So I thought, why not just be honest and say, here's some of these questions you're answering, all right, that you've asked, and let's answer those. Does that sound all right with you? All right, well, let's get started. Um, truths about the afterlife. I read to you from Matthew chapter 13. And what Jesus just told us in this parable, here's four things that he tells us in this parable. Number one is this. All people will be brought to judgment before God. All people. Now, when you say judgment, you think, oh, no, I'm in trouble if I get brought to judgment. 
That just means you're going to stand before the righteous judge and he and only he is going to determine whether or not your life is righteous or whether or not your life is unrighteous or evil. So all people will be brought to judgment before him. The second thing is this. There is a separation process that's going to occur. Just like the weeds and the wheat and the grain is going to be separated, there's a separation process that's going to occur. And he's going to be the one to determine what is weeds and what is wheat. Third thing is this. Those made righteous by Jesus will be rewarded in heaven. Those made righteous by Jesus will be rewarded in heaven. And then Jesus says, number four, those who reject Jesus will be punished in hell. That is not a popular topic to talk about. And yet Jesus thought it so important that he told us what it's going to be like at the end. As a matter of fact, he held several parables to tell us that there is a righteous reward awaiting, awaiting the righteous, and there is a punishment those who've lived evil. Heaven, hell. Remember, the Bible says that Jesus came in grace and truth, in love and mercy, and righteousness and holiness. They're both there. And he wants us to know about them. So the first thing I want us to do is let's talk about heaven. What are we talking about with heaven? One of the most interesting questions that came up that I'm going to share with you, and some of you may be very intrigued, and some of you may go, what is this? Could you tell us what is the difference between the first, the second, and the third heaven? So some of you are like, yes, that's what I want to know. Some of you are like, wait, wait what? That's okay. So the Bible talks about three heavens in that, the scripture that, that uses the word heaven. The first heaven is when he talks about the atmosphere. It's the, it's the atmosphere, it's the clouds, it's the sky. So when the Bible in creation says, and God created the heavens and the earth, it's talking about the earth, the land mass, and the water, and it's talking about the atmosphere above it in that. So he created the heavens and the earth. But then the Bible also talks about a second heaven, which is the planets and the stars and the suns and all the things that are in um, the solar system in that. The Bible calls this, when, when God created that, it says he created all of these things, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of the firmament. That, that's the word that's used in a lot of the, the translations, the firmament. So you've got atmosphere, which is the, sort of the heavens and the earth, and you've got the firmament, which is the solar system out there. And then the Bible talks about there is a third heaven, and this is a place where God resides. The best place that it's talked about is the Apostle Paul talks about it when he began to share about a vision that God gave him. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body, but I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. So the first, second, third heaven, our world, the atmosphere, that's the first heaven, the solar system, the firmament, that is the second heaven, and the third heaven is the place where God resides. Now, the place where God resides, Jesus talks about this place, but he talks about it in a promise that he makes to you and to me and to his disciples the night before he is going to be crucified. What he tells them is John chapter 14, he has just told them he's going to be crucified, he's going to go away, and they're not going to see him for a long time. And so he says this, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be where I am. 
and you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Four quick things Jesus tells us about heaven right here. Heaven is not an idea. It's not a concept. It's a place. He says, heaven is real. Tells us right away, it's heaven is real. He says, the reason I'm telling you it's real is this, is I'm going there, I'm going to prepare it. It's a real thing that I'm going to get ready. Second thing is this, is that Jesus, heaven is being prepared for you by Jesus himself. This is looking back um, when, when in the um, Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, when someone would get married, they would get engaged, and then there was an engagement process that was a preparation process. And the preparation was that the groom would go, and he would prepare a house. Back then, you lived in sort of community or communal settings with your family. So when you got married, you would build on an addition to your father's house, and you would live there, and you'd carry about the father's business as well, whatever that business that was. If it was farming, if it was carpentry, whatever it was, you would build in that. And so Jesus, when he tells this, and he tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you, they know what he's talking about. It's this idea of I'm waiting, he's getting it ready, and he's going to come back and take me to live with him forever. It's this concept of being of a marriage, of a bride and a groom in this. So heaven is real and it's being prepared for you by Jesus. The third thing is this. Heaven will be perfect because Jesus is there. Heaven's going to be perfect because Jesus is there. Now, there's going to be all sorts of things that you love about heaven, all sorts of things that people talk about heaven. I hear people all the time. There's different translations. You know, in my father's house, there's many mansions or many rooms, and I hear the debate. Well, I just want a mansion. You know, I, don't give me a room. I want a mansion. And the other's like, man, I don't care where I am as long as I'm in the father's house. That's not what it's about. The foundations of the city are going to be made of precious gemstones, 12 of them. The gates are going to be carved out of giant pearls, almost incomprehensible. The streets are going to be paved with gold. Probably the most valuable commodity that we keep track of is gold these days. I mean, the price of gold is always on the stock market. It's always available. Most people kind of know sort of where the price of gold is. It's because it's been such a valuable commodity. Gold in heaven is pavement. It's asphalt with no potholes. But what we consider so valuable is literally the foundation of what we walk upon. What makes heaven valuable is that our Lord and Savior who gave his all for us is going to be there forever and ever and ever. And then he tells us that heaven is available because of the sacrifice of Jesus. When Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know how to get there? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's through his sacrifice, his death on the cross, his payment for our sins, and his resurrection rising from the dead that we can have new life in Christ and have eternal life with him forever. Heaven is real. Heaven is being prepared for you. Heaven is perfect because Jesus is there. And heaven is available because of the sacrifice of Jesus. There's grace 
and there's truth, there's love and there's mercy, and there's holiness and righteousness. And Jesus doesn't mince words that heaven is not the only option that's out there. As a matter of fact, Jesus brings up the subject of hell more than he does heaven in Scripture. So I would love, I would love to come here this morning and just give you a synopsis of heaven and just send you on your merry way smiling. (laughs) I would love that. But I have to stand before God and give an answer whether or not I preach the whole word. So Jesus talks about hell. What does he say? In the same chapter, Matthew chapter 13, a few verses later, in verses 47 through 51, listen to what he says. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad, threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A couple of questions I want to ask, I want to answer real quick. Can a good, ju- can a good God justify hell? Would a good God send people to hell? And when I, When I tell you this, I need you to understand, I'm talking about me too. When you ask that question, you're starting with the wrong premise. You are acting as if you know how to determine what is actually good. Only the maker of heaven and earth, only the one who created mankind gets to determine what is good and what is not good. Because if I determine it or you determine it, it's always with selfish motives. Even if we don't see it or don't want to admit it, it's always with somewhat of selfish motives because we've always got us at the center and wanting to benefit from whatever goodness it is. It's truth. Only God gets to tell us what good is. But God's love is also balanced by holiness and righteousness. And the Bible tells us that without holiness, no one can see God. And Jesus offers us holiness the sacrifice that he makes. Another question is this, isn't hell a great price, too great a price for just not believing in Jesus? But here's what the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, the reality of what's happening when you reject Jesus. It says, for anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's talking about the Old Testament. And then he says, Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and treated the blood of the covenant, which has made us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. Here's what the Bible tells us that we do when we reject Jesus, especially time and time and time again. We have trampled on the Son of God. That is a weighty phrase that the writer of Hebrews is very intentional about using. He goes on and says, we have treated the blood of the covenant as common and unholy. Those words mean worthless and ordinary. It is as if to say that the blood that was spilled by the Son of God is no better than the blood that was spilled by the goats in the Old Testament. When we reject Jesus, He goes on and says that we have disdained the Holy Spirit who offers God's mercy. Disdain means to publicly mock or insult the Holy Spirit. 
But the writer of Hebrews wants the people to know, us to know. You aren't just rejecting a concept or a religion or a religious idea. You are rejecting the Son of God who is making a way, even though our sinful actions have kept us from God, making a way for us to have access to the Father and a relationship with Him. And if you trample on the Son of God, if you consider the blood that was spilled as worthless and ordinary, if you disdain and publicly mock the Holy Spirit who is constantly drawing us to God, then the only place is to live apart from him in eternity. And the only place that is apart from him in eternity is hell. So what is hell going to be like? According to Jesus, number one, it's going to be emotional anguish. Emotional anguish. Two things. You realize the gravity of what you've done, and you realize that you have made yourself worthless. God, in the person of Jesus, came to give you worth based on who he created you to be, but that only is given through Jesus Christ our Lord. But he says in that passage we read in Matthew chapter 13, that parable, he says it's going to be thrown into the blazing furnace. The word that is used there is Gehenna. Gehenna is actually something they would know exactly what he was talking about. Outside of Jerusalem, in the Kidron Valley, there was a garbage dump. And in that garbage dump, it's where people threw everything that was no value to them. And that garbage dump was burning all of the time. The name of that place was Gehenna. What he's saying is if you reject, then at the end of time, when God sends his angels to separate based on God's judgment, based on God's righteousness, based on God's holiness, and based on God's grace, he said, you're going to be thrown into Gehenna. A place where you have made yourself Worthless, emotional anguish. He says, gnashing of teeth. It is when you realize something you've done. You know what gnashing of teeth is? It's when you make a decision or do something and you just go, ugh, I can't believe. An eternity of that. Emotional anguish. The second thing is physical anguish. Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus, both of them died. The rich man treated the beggar poorly. The rich man wound up in torment. The beggar winds up in paradise in the arms of Abraham from the Old, covenant, uh, the Old Testament. And in the parable, Jesus says, the rich man in torment said, could you simply let Lazarus come, dip his finger in water, and come over and cool my tongue, for I am in torment and anguish. This is not about dying and just having eternal annihilation or just dying and being away from God. This is physical language Jesus is describing. Emotional language, physical language, relational language. In hell is aloneness. Though you may be surrounded by millions of people, you will be absolutely alone. And it's spiritual anguish too, the fourth thing. Spiritual anguish. This is the hardest one to talk about, the hardest one to describe. 
Because at that moment, you realize for all of your life, no matter how you've lived, the Spirit of God has been beckoning you to come into a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of our lives. And at that moment, it's over. There's no more drawing. There's no more possibility. It is eternally separating from the one who created you because the choice that you make over and over and over again. I know. I know that's a weighty subject. I know it's difficult to hear. But Jesus thought it's so important that instead of worrying about hurting your feelings, he wanted to save your life. Heaven and hell. The only two options in the afterlife. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But there were three questions that were asked quite a bit that I didn't know how to weave them into the sermon, so I just said I'll pause and answer them. Okay? The first one is this. Are ghosts real? Are ghosts real? Technically speaking, ghosts are spirits. Even in old translation, ghost means spirit. And even in older translation, when anytime the word used ghost, it means spirit or whatever. Um, what we think of as ghost is the bodies uh, or the people who have died before us coming back to either haunt or help us. That's what we think of as ghosts. Ghosts technically are spirits. And yes, there are spirits. Angels, demons, they're spirits. Um, and do angels, can they appear to us? Yes. How often? I don't know. And no one else does either. Humanly speaking. But the Bible tells us that in the writer of Hebrews, that when he's encouraging us to show hospitality to strangers, he says, I want you to make sure you show hospitality to strangers because some of us have entertained angels unaware in that. Now, that's a reference to two things. It's a reference back to Genesis when Abraham and Sarah entertained three strangers in the Old Testament, and those strangers turn out to be angels or messengers who deliver a message that says, you're going to have a child in your old age. And, of course, that child is a child of promise, that from that, that promise comes the nation of Israel. But also, it's a current reality that he's talking about. Be careful to do this. It is possible that you encounter angels along the way. Now, I want to tell you something about angels, though. Um, there is a reality of spiritual warfare in our lives. You need to know that. That demonic forces, the forces of Satan, they hate you. And they don't want to see you in a relationship with God. And God's angels fight on your behalf. And you need to always ask God, help me, protect me, send your angels to fight for me. But I need you to understand something. That's where the line stops. Angels are messengers of God. They fight for him on your behalf. You don't tell angels what to do. You ask God to tell his angels what to do. I'm just telling you, some people have this concept of I'll just... I command angels from the east, the south, the north, and the west, just to whatever. Most of the time in scriptures, most of the time, 
if anyone ever saw an angel, they either did one of two things. They either fell down in fright or they fell down in worship. Because of how awesome they are. And they work for God. They work on your behalf. And you need to pray that God sends angels on your behalf. But they only work for one person. And that's the one who created them. The spirits of people don't come back to help or to haunt us. Okay? Now, there is a strange passage in, um, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 28. And when I tell it to you, some of you are going to go read 1 Samuel chapter 28 for the first time in your life. But there's a strange chapter where there's a story about King Saul and Samuel, the prophet, has died. King Saul has turned wicked, and he's trying to get Samuel, whom he's rejected his advice. And so he goes to a spiritual medium, and in the spiritual medium, he asks her to call up Samuel. Now, in doing this, it's an apparition, okay? There is an appearance of something that looks human-like in spirit form that comes, and it rebukes Saul, but this is not common for her. The Bible says that she calls on it. She doesn't even know it's King Saul at first. She calls on it. And she is shocked, surprised, and terrified that anything actually happened. That's what it says. She, she, she's calling on it, but not expecting anything to happen in this. Um, it just reminds me, I, may, I think I've told you one time before this, there was a time I was driving down Cobb Parkway, and when I drove down Cobb Parkway, I was on the Bluetooth phone with, um, with my son, and I, uh, the Bluetooth went out, and, you know, hands-free state, so any of our cops that are listening out there, I pulled over, you know, <laughs> pulled over into the parking lot and uh, picked up the phone, finished the phone call. And as I'm finishing up the phone call, there comes a knock on my window. Kind of scared me. I wasn't expecting anybody to be there. I rolled the window down. The guy said, can I help you? You need something? Anything wrong? And I went, no, no, I'm just finishing a call. I said, is that okay? He said, no, it's fine. And I just, I rolled my window back up and he turned around, walked back and I looked at the building he was walking in. I didn't realize it before. It said psychic reader on it. And my first thought was, he asked me, is everything okay? Is there anything wrong? I'm thinking, shouldn't you know? <laughs> this medium is shocked and surprised that it even happens. But when this angelic messenger taking on the form and the look of Saul appears, I mean, Samuel appears to Saul, he looks at Saul and says, you didn't listen to anything God told you while I was living. I'll give you nothing now. It was a rebuke. The question that was on the list too about ghosts and loved ones, what about dreams of loved ones who've passed away? Um, I don't believe that there are the spirits of those who've passed away. I do believe that God can use dreams to help minister to you and heal you in hurtful circumstances. I believe that. I, I know that to be true. When I was 21, my best friend in college passed away and, um, of an enlarged heart, and um, it was sudden. And, and at 21, you, you, don't really, you, you don't really share, and you don't share a lot of your feelings, especially dudes. You don't share your feelings, you know? And it bothered me for several years that I never had a chance to tell him how much I looked up to him, how much he meant to me, how much I loved him as a friend, constantly bothered me. And there was one night 
I remember having a dream, and he was there, and I was at one of my old childhood homes. I didn't, I've only known him in college, so it was all out of place. And yet when he walked into that place, I just simply said those things. Always looked up to you. Always, always treasured our friendship. And I loved you. And the only words that came back to me was, I know. And I knew it all along. I woke up, never had another thought about it again. Never worried or fretted over that that had been troubling me for years. God used a dream to help heal me. But it wasn't the spirit of my friend. It was God using him in a dream. Are ghosts real? Technically speaking, if they're spirits, yes, angels and demons are spirits. But they are not our our loved ones who've come back to haunt us or to help us. Second question is this. What happens to cremated bodies? What happens to cremated bodies? Um, It's true burial has been a traditional way of honoring and disposing of dead bodies way back. Even in, in biblical times, it's the majority of things of what happens in biblical times too. But cremation is also seen in the Bible. King Saul that we talked about was defeated in battle. His body was mutilated. His head was severed. His body was mutilated and hung on a, on a, um, a post for everybody who crossed by to see. And the people of Jabesh Gilead came out, saw that it was King Saul's body, and refused to allow it to do that. And they took his body down, and they honored him by not allowing him to do that. And they burned his body and cremated his body. Now, that's not the way most kings were dealt with. But it is... It was not them trampling on him or dishonoring him. They refused to allow him to be in that state. Here's what I can tell you. Cremation doesn't hinder bodily resurrection when Jesus returns. I know there are people that have taught and said, man, if you ever go the route of cremation, it is over. God is never going to find all those little particles. I'm not making this up. You've heard it too. Listen, if Ezekiel chapter 37 tells us of a vision Ezekiel had of dead, dry, decomposing bones spread across the world and God brings those together and makes them live again, he can take a cremated body and he can bring it back and put it into a heavenly body and give them eternal life. Third question is this. This is one of those, some of you are going to go, I've waited for this. And some of you are going to go, what? Just... What happened to all the people's souls who died before Jesus came? Old Testament, early New Testament. What happened to all their souls? The Bible tells us that there was a place that was created called Sheol. It's called Hades sometimes, okay? It was the holding place. The Bible tells us there was a place for the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus talks about it when he talks about the rich man, the beggar Lazarus, and Abraham that we already talked about. This is where he's talking about in this. And so there was a place there where those who had lived righteously according to the Old Testament, they were there. The unrighteous were there too. So what happened to him? The Bible tells us that Jesus, after he died and before he resurrected, descended into that place and preached 
to them. Here's what the Bible tells us. First Peter chapter three, verses 18 through 20. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. And he suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed long, God long ago when God patiently waited while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. So it says he's preaching not only to the righteous, he's preaching to the unrighteous that were down there. Because though they lived far apart from God, they literally have never had a chance to accept or reject Jesus as the only way, truth, and life. The Bible also tells us that as the scriptures say, when he, Jesus, went to the highest place, he led away many prisoners and gave gifts to people. And when it says that he, Jesus, went up, it means that Christ had been deep in the earth. This also means that the one who went deep into the earth is the same one who went into the highest heaven so he would fill the whole universe. So the word Sheol that it talks about, it's a place of paradise and waiting and a place of torment in waiting. But once Jesus went into there and preached, those who accepted him went with him. They ascended with him on high. And now there is no place for the righteous and the unsure, the purgatory. There's, there's no place that's there anymore because Jesus emptied that of the people who accepted him and took them with him. Because the writer tells us, Paul tells us, that now, after Jesus rose from the dead, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that when we die now, our bodies may go into the ground or may be scattered all over the earth, but our souls ascend to heaven and we are absent from the body, but we are present with the Lord. What is most fascinating to me is the lengths at which God would go to give us an opportunity to be with him forever. Earlier, the question was, why would a good God send people to hell? The better question is this. Why would God allow sinful people who time and time again have rejected him to have a relationship with him now and eternity with him in heaven? Why would he do that? Because he loves you more than you can ever comprehend. John 3.16 says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I know some of you ask the question all the time. When times are getting tough, when you see the world going in a direction that you just can't understand, how long, Lord? How long are you going to wait? And one of his closest disciples, Simon Peter, writes and reminds us that his wait that we see as excruciating is actually his patience that is being poured out on this earth. He says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. And the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Verse 15, 
Remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Every time I cry out and say, how long until you come again, Lord? He reminds me of a family member or a friend that needs him. And think about this. Whatever your age, whether it's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, I'm in my early 50s. And I think people have been praying for years. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. What if God would have answered that prayer when I was in my teens? and rebelling against him? What if God would have answered that prayer for them when I was early on in my college years? I'm so thankful that he was patient and waited for me. God knows the exact number and the exact people who are going to accept him. And he will not come again until all of those have the ability to know him here and to live with him there. Without holiness, no one can see God. And Jesus has made us holy through his sacrifice and our surrender. And even this day, the Spirit of God is still beckoning people to come home to the person God created them to be. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here in this place right now and you know things weren't right between you and the Lord when you came in this place. I just want you to pray a prayer simply like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for what you have done for all of us and for me included. Thank you that you have forgiven me of my sins because of your sacrifice. And so I ask, Lord, that you forgive me of my past, but I also tell you that I'm yielding my life. I surrender now. I don't leave my life anymore. You do. You're Lord from this day forward, and I will never be the same. I'm going to ask everyone in the room, pray this prayer of profession. We say, Jesus, I give you my life. One more time. Jesus, I give you my life. Now, with your heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around except the ministry team and me. If that's you, I'm not here to embarrass you or call you out. I want to pray for you this week. But you know when you came in here this morning, things weren't right between you and the Lord. And you're making a decision to follow him for the first time or the first time in a long time. You say, Pastor, pray for me this week. That's me. I want you to raise your hand. Keep it up really high just for a moment. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Oh, yeah. God bless you. Keep up really high. Man, you are not alone. God bless you. God bless you. Yep. Yep. Just a moment more. Anyone else? Anyone else? Today is the day of salvation. Amen. All right, you can put them down. Lord, I thank you right now for surrendered lives and changed hearts. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you will give them the assurance of the decision they've made. Lord, they've made a decision to fall on your grace and to surrender to your righteousness. And I pray that today that the weight of sin be lifted off of their shoulders and that joy unspeakable will fill their hearts and souls right now. I pray that as they leave this place, they walk out with a sense of destiny and purpose and a smile that cannot be wiped off their face. 
I pray for every one of us in this room right now that realize that heaven and hell are reality and that every one of us are going to spend some, some, our eternity in one of those two places. God, may that make us more aware of the people we come in contact with. May that make us more ready to share the good news that grace is available to all who will call upon the name of the Lord. And may we pray for the lost. May we ask you to open our eyes to the harvest that is right in front of us so that hell will be emptied, heaven will be filled, and God will be glorified. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hey, can you celebrate with me today? 12 people gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you made that decision today or in the last few weeks, we'd love to help you get started on that walk with Jesus. Our grow team will be down front. Just come see them. Give them a couple of minutes of your time, and they would love to help you in this process. Also, if you'd like to have more information about getting plugged in at North or discovering your spiritual gifts, in the seat back in front of you, there's a card. Take that card. Fill it out. You can give it to one of our um, worship center hosts. You can drop it in one of the giving boxes, or you can take it in the atrium to the next steps area, uh, and they can go ahead and get you started in that process. We would love to get you plugged in here at Mount Perrin North. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. Every week, we get the pleasure of blessing you according to what's called the priestly or pastoral blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, where it says, when you speak this, that the name of the Lord just settles in on you. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you, folks. Love you. You have a great week. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you would like to learn more about North, be sure to check out our website at mountparanorth.com. If you have any questions, you can email us at info at mountparanorth.com or give us a call at 770-578-9081. And if you're in the Marietta, Georgia area, we'd love to have you join us for worship next Sunday at 945 or 1115 a.m. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.